Welcome to the Unorthodoxy podcast and to the second in a series that I'm doing on the Enneagram. My intention in this and in other episodes in this series is to look at some of the details and dynamics of the Enneagram personality typing system. When I say personality typing system, by the way, I cringe a little because the point of the Enneagram is not to arrive at a bunch of neat and restrictive categories and boxes, but to help us to better understand the fact that personality is, in some ways, an illusion. I realize that may sound a bit odd and disturbing given that Western culture is utterly obsessed with personality. Although this manifests, as I see it, in in terribly ironic ways. People love celebrities, for instance, but those same celebrities are almost only ever appreciated for being empty containers into which everyone else can transplant their own hopes and dreams. Still, that aside, when I say that personality is a fiction, I don't mean that personality doesn't exist. I'm just saying that personality can, in some ways, keep reality at bay. In a way, maybe it's better to say that personality is a necessary fiction that we live in and through, but its familiarity to us often prevents us from seeing into the deeper things of life, the universe, and everything. This is why probably the most helpful way of engaging with the Enneagram is to understand that it it is a system that describes both how we lose contact with reality and how we might find our way back. To reality. In the previous episode, I gave a bit of an outline of what to expect in the series, and the gist of it is that I want to explore the Enneagram as a dynamic system. This means that understanding the Enneagram and how the different numbers relate is vital. You may, for instance, be an 8 on the Enneagram, but getting to the bottom of what it means to be an 8 also means taking the trouble to understand how that eightishness relates to both its wings, that is the numbers numbers on either side of the eight, and to its points of integration and disintegration, namely in this case the numbers two and five. And getting into the dynamism of the Enneagram also means, among other things, having a very solid sense of which center you fit into, whether gut, head, or heart. So here I want to zoom in and look at the triangle shape on the inside of the Enneagram's boundary circle, which is created by connecting the numbers 9, 6, and 3. Since this will help, I think, to give a better sense of both what the Enneagram is about and also how the different centers work. To begin with, though, I want to look at the myth of the fall. The fall is this theological idea that somehow, in spite of the goodness of creation and in spite of all the good stuff like food and sex and Legos and armchairs and pianos, humankind is fallen. The idea has been abused in Christian tradition in some ways, especially in the fact that it has given rise to the notion of total depravity. Nothing we can do according to this understanding is perfect, and goodness is essentially something unreachable by us, which means we need to be saved. All of this, I think, comes from an influx of way too much Gnosticism and way too many people taking Quentin Tarantino films as their primary theological point of departure. The Gnostic idea holds that the material world is evil and the spirit is good. And this is actually, in terms of Christian theology, pretty untenable. 
And I'd also say that the ideas around fallenness and total depravity are directly the result of having immature Enneatype 1s dictate some of the societal and theological structures of our day, but that is something that I should probably talk about in a later episode. So what we need, I think, is a much more nuanced understanding of the fall. First, let's look at the mythology. What the Garden of Eden and the narrative of Adam and Eve represent is this idea that the human predicament is profoundly connected to the idea that we are always surrounded by and grounded by reality itself, and yet we somehow struggle to properly come into contact with that reality. To put it differently, there's a kind of ontic obfuscation built into our way of relating to the world. This simply means that while everything is exactly what it is, it is never as it appears to us. Everything is exactly what it is, but it's never exactly as it appears to us. We, we see things, as the writer Paul says, through a glass darkly. The fall is also representative of a basic psychological fact, which is that at some point just past our infancy, we all experience a gap. To begin with, everything feels like one. Everything is one and connected. And the result is that we flow with whatever is happening and live pretty reactively. The world at this level of infancy is pretty much an extension of ourselves, and we are an extension of it. But then at some point, we experience a gap, a fall, a distance between ourselves and everything around us. We come to a horrible realization that we experience things as ourselves and that others experience things differently than we do. Suddenly we find ourselves living in an atonal world where things can be both in tune and out of tune without warning. Empathy remains there, but solidarity seems to be in flux. If undifferentiation was once our experience, the fall means that there is differentiation and difference and, of course, there is also distance. And this is really traumatic for everyone. And it's traumatic not just because we feel a gap between ourselves and the world, but because we lose touch with something deeper. In Enneagram language, we lose contact with our essential nature or essence. And all of us go through this, unless we're insane, because this is what is necessary for us to begin to develop an ego structure. It's also what allows us to become conscious, which means that the fall is precisely what is needed for perception to be possible at all. If you think that that sounds nonsensical in theological terms, think again, because there are other ways of reading this story. The doctrine of the fall in large parts of Christendom assumes that the fall is entirely bad, but a closer look at the story of Eden reveals something else. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil is, as the name suggests, the tree of conscience. Before the fall, it seems that Adam and Eve were blissfully unaware of their own separateness from the world. After the fall, their separateness becomes profoundly evident, and in the process, conscience is born. This separateness that Adam and Eve feel is symbolized by their exit from the garden, but the fact that they are still with God is suggested by the fact that God goes with them. God slash reality is never not with us. 
And you see this very clearly in the Genesis account. At the end of Genesis 3, Adam and Eve are sent from the Garden of Eden. At the beginning of chapter 4, God is with Adam and Eve as the source of all life and generativity. So this idea carries into the Enneagram. We fall, and by falling, we come into conscience and consciousness. But the benefits of this fall are accompanied by some very obvious disbenefits. We become, in the process, identified with our bodies and our own strength and our own needs and desires, rather than recognizing these as manifestations of God. We perceive our separateness first and foremost in terms of our bodily experience. Which is, by the way, what point nine on the Enneagram symbolizes. In fact, I should mention that the sense of loss that accompanies the start of ego formation is symbolized by the three points of the inner triangle of the Enneagram, points nine, six, and three. So in other words, the inner triangle is particularly symbolic of three dimensions of our fallenness. Here, by the way, I'm really talking about the numbers 9, 6, and 3, and not just the personalities of 9s, 6s, and 3s. So point 9 represents the primary sense of estrangement from reality that we experience in the fall. It is significant, then, that the point 9 also represents the apex of the Enneagram and what is known as the instinct, strength, or body triad, which also includes the numbers 8 and 1. All of these have a relationship with instinct or gut impulse. Eights over-express this connectedness with instinct. Ones under-express it. And nines are the most out of touch with it. The second aspect of the loss of reality is symbolized by the sixth point on the Enneagram. It suggests a profound sense of the inadequacies of our environments when it comes to meeting our immediate needs. The bodily separateness that we feel at the ninth point of the Enneagram is accompanied by an increasing awareness of the ways that the physical environment, the physical world, isn't quite in tune with our bodily needs. Think again of an infant who, without language, doesn't know how to properly articulate to his parents that it needs more milk or that it is cold. The repeated gap between personal needs and environmental accommodation means that the infant senses that it is not being properly held or supported by reality. Point six thus represents a kind of distrust of the world, a kind of fearfulness. The world is not necessarily hostile, although it can be, but at the very least, we have come to grips with the fact that it is more difficult to live in tune with the world than we want it to be. This sixth point represents a disjunction between the patterns of our mind and the patterns of the world. And it also happens to be the center point of the head triad, which also includes the numbers five and seven. While Enneotype 5s over-express their headiness and their intellects, Enneotype 7s under-express it, and Enneotype 6s are the most out of touch with it. The last aspect of loss symbolized by the inner triangle of the Enneagram and represented by the third point on the Enneagram is a loss of a sense of attunement to our own depths. 
This loss is mirrored in a world obsessed with surfaces and forgetful of essences. And the trouble with this is that almost everything in the world gets constructed to confirm this loss of depth. This, in turn, is imposed on us, compelling us to live in accordance with expectations that aren't necessarily very healthy. At an experiential level, this deeply affects our emotional state, which is fitting since the third point on the Enneagram represents the heart point, which is sandwiched in by two other numbers, two and four. This plays out in the following way. Enneotype two over-expresses emotion. Enneotype four under-expresses emotion. And Enneotype three is the most out of touch with emotion. So there you have what the three points of the equilateral triangle represent. A loss of connection to reality, which corresponds with our over-identification with our bodies. Then a loss of a sense that the world holds us and corresponds with our psychological and physical needs. And this produces a kind of psychological reactivity. And then lastly, there's this loss of a sense of our depths, which corresponds with our over-identification with surfaces. Even though these three points are represented by the Enneotypes 9, 6, and 3, they symbolize something that every single one of us experiences. And part of the journey back to what we might call the true self must, in some sense, imply a reversal of this process. This means, as far as point three is considered, we need to reclaim and seek a sense of our own depths. At point six, we need to once again find our place, our situatedness within the world. And at point nine, we need to come into contact with the realness of reality again.